Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. To be a citizen of a nation used to mean a special bond with that country. Whether it was your land of birth or perhaps your parents' homeland, citizenship often carried with it an emotional, legal, sometimes physical, and almost moral bond. Today, a lot of that has changed. As the elites strive to become citizens of the world, as tax havens become more accepted even beyond the one-tenth of one percent, as dual passports become a status symbol in high-end airport lounges around the globe, and more recently, as nations try and find creative ways to deal with stateless refugees and immigrants, citizenship has become a commodity. What this means for the value of the nation-state its impact on nationalism, its trigger potential for the nostalgia of days gone by, and the credibility of nations that sell citizenships to the highest bidder are all issues that impact both geopolitics and local politics. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Atusa Abrahamian. She watched this transformation and wrote about it in her book, Cosmopolites. Atusa Abrahamian is a journalist based in New York and is a senior editor at The Nation. She's worked as an opinion editor at Al Jazeera America and a general news and business reporter for Reuters. She grew up in Geneva and studied philosophy as an undergraduate at Columbia, where she returned to the master's program in investigative reporting. And she's the author of the 2015 award-winning book, Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. It is my pleasure to welcome Atusa Abrahamian here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Atusa, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jeff. The pleasure is all mine. Well, it is a delight to have you here. As all of this has changed with respect to citizenship, the selling of citizenship, which we'll talk about, and this sense of, of the elites in particular wanting to be citizens of the world, it really has changed, it seems, fundamentally what it means to be a citizen of anywhere. Talk a little bit about that first. Yeah, so whether it's actually changed something or revealed, you know, the contradictions that have always been there is that's that's an open question. But um, as you pointed out in your introduction, people used to feel quite attached to their nations. Um, again, whether this is mythology or something real, that's up for debate, right? But if you surveyed, you know, the average European citizen or Indian citizen or Japanese citizen, um, 50 years ago, you might have a pretty different answer as to whether they felt deeply bound to their homeland. Um, you know, now people want to move more. People um, feel different types of allegiances because uh, of people moving. They might have more than one passport. And so this is it, it's uh, I think that that's a pretty expected um byproducts of globalization, um, and it's one that we're still kind of trying to wrap our heads around. And dual passports, for example, have become almost a kind of status symbol. Yeah, for sure. So having one, uh, having two citizenships can be really useful if you're a person who travels a lot or has business around the world, um, because it just opens up so many more doors to you. It means you can travel more freely in certain parts of the world. It means you can register a company. Um, it means in some cases that you can have certain um, access to certain types of um, bank accounts or privileges. And uh, yeah, so if you're if you're sort of a jet, a jet set person, it's uh, it's a status symbol and it's almost like, you know, some uh, many people come by their second citizenships, quote unquote, honestly. Um, but <laughs> Uh, uh, but many people seek them out just as a plan B. Talk a little bit about what you discovered in, in researching cosmopolites 
where nations now are using this as a commodity that they can sell on, in, in various ways. So countries realized that there was a demand for people obtaining a second citizenship in different ways. In some cases, like in Canada's case, there's been a sort of a long tradition of birth tourism, people going to Canada um, to have babies so that they would have Canadian citizenship by birthright. I, I happen, full disclosure, I'm one of these babies. Um, so that was one way of doing it. But then as this practice became more and more sort of known and established among certain circles um, in the Middle East or in China or Russia, some consultants came along and said, well, what if we just turn this into a business? Why don't we find a way so that pregnant women don't have to fly, you know, around the world when they're seven months pregnant to have babies and just let these rich people buy passports instead? And so that's what happened. Um, you had this small group of consultants approaching countries that had already, you know, made quite a, a good business um, selling access to other laws like tax laws. I'm thinking in this case about St. Kitts and Nevis. Um, pitching them on um, creating uh, investor citizenship or economic citizenship and helping them market it around the world. And let me tell you, it was a hit. And then, of course, countries found out that they could do this in bulk. Talk about that. Yeah, that's a little more unusual. And that, to my knowledge, it's only happened once. But in addition to there being these kind of stateless rich people who are jet set and they don't really have a home and they have all these passports and you know, business ties and, and what have you, there are people in the world who don't have any citizenship at all. That's usually because they're being deprived of, of this right um, by the country they live in. And in the United Arab Emirates in particular, there's a large number of stateless people um, on the order of 40,000. So they'll only admit there's about 10,000. And, um, you know, it's not great for a country to have stateless people either because they can't keep tabs on people who don't have documentation. Um, at the same time, in the Emirates, if you're an Emirati citizen, you've got it made. You get um, very generous welfare. You, they help you buy a house. They help you get married. I mean, they, there's just a lot of financial um, welfare for Emiratis. So there's a reason that they don't want to just give their passport away to just anybody. And they don't like the stateless people for political reasons. And so instead of documenting them with Emirati papers, the um, Abu Dhabi authorities struck a deal with the island of the Comoros, this is a, a sovereign nation uh, in the Indian Ocean, island nation. And uh, the Comoros provided some 40,000, 50,000 uh, citizenships to people who had none in the Emirates. And these were people that, that never had been to the island of Comoros and probably never will be. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they'd even heard of it in the first place, right? Um, I, I consider myself someone who, who kind of knows the map, and I didn't know what the Comoro Islands were um, a country before I embarked on this project. So, you know, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a place that is on most people's radar. And that's actually why this, this plan worked, because when it's a small country, it's, it's you know, pretty remote, um, not not a ton of media go there. Um, so not a lot of people found out about it, and they were able to pull off this plan without too many people complaining about it. Have other nations considered this or thought about taking advantage of it, either in a place like Comoros or, or a similar place? So Kuwait was kicking around um, this idea with the Comoros as well, and there were, there were some negotiations that didn't pan out. Um, Kuwait also has a, a quite a sizable stateless population. 
The only analogous um, scenario I can think of, which it's a little bit different, but it's kind of operating on the same principle, is when countries um, try to send asylum seekers who arrive at their borders to another country. So the UK was talking about sending asylum seekers who are coming to the UK to Rwanda um, just a couple months ago. And uh, to my knowledge, no asylum seekers have been sent to Rwanda. But this kind of offshoring of populations that are unwanted um, for whatever reason, uh, that is definitely a trend. And I, I imagine that this will this will continue um, gathering steam as time passes. What impact has this had at, that, that you've seen in terms of, of the waves and rise of nationalism that we see around the world? This sense that, that people are less moored, less connected to countries, and those that long for, for days gone by become more nationalistic. I don't think that there is necessarily a correlation between the people who object to these practices and the degree of their nationalism. Um, in other words, nationalists, nationalist politicians are just as complicit in selling passports as, you know, quote unquote, globalist politicians or liberal politicians or what have you. Um, this is like a pretty hardcore neoliberal uh, type of project. And, and as we, you know, we just have to look at the various nationalists who have been elected, they have no problem with these types of economic policies. And so I don't I, I think that there's quite a bit of hypocrisy going on. Um, the broader question of whether you know, the commodification or commoditization of citizenship and turning it into a product like a pair of sneakers, whether this um, weakens um, perceived value of the nation. Sure, but you also have to remember that people are buying into nations by buying passports. So they're not dismantling the entire concept. They're just revealing that everything has a price, even even the nation. In the years since you first started looking at this, have you seen an increase in the commodification of passports around the world? Oh, for sure. When I started reporting on this, I was, it was 2011, 2012, um, just a small handful of countries were selling passports. Um, since then, it's really exploded. You know, every, every month you hear about a new country that's looking into it, um, Armenia, I think, is, is, is considering it. Um, there's always Caribbean countries that are kicking this around. So, you know, it's just it's become a pretty standard economic development tactic. Um, countries that don't have a lot of money really have to be creative and resourceful. And this is a resource they have that, and when you think about it, it doesn't pollute the environment, doesn't cost them anything. It can create some PR problems, and, and you definitely want to make sure that criminals don't get in. Uh, Cyprus had some problems when it became it became apparent that they'd provided a Cypriot a citizenship, which is also EU citizenship, uh, to some pretty notorious criminals out of Malaysia. But um, you know, the 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 cost of this, besides the reputational cost, is quite low for countries, and so it makes sense that this is what they resort to uh, once they they realize they're in a bad economic situation or just when they want to attract um, rich people and, and make a little extra cash. We've seen it in, in, in Western countries, even where it goes along with buying citizenship comes along with buying property. Yeah, you could, you could get um, a citizenship or a residence permit. So in Malta, you were, you could get a citizenship. Part of the package was you buy or rent an apartment or a house. Um, Portugal was doing something similar, not with citizenship, but with uh, um, essentially the Portuguese green card, uh, permanent residence. 
Um, it's hard to find a country that doesn't offer permanent residence for money. Uh, the U.S. has a program called the EB-5 program um, that essentially sells green cards. Canada has a version of this. Um, it depends on the province. You know, most, most European countries have a version of this. Uh, look, rich con- uh, countries just really like rich people, I guess, and uh, they want to make it as easy for rich people to come live there as possible while making it as difficult as possible for poor people. What, if anything, has been the pushback to this? Are there any nations, Western nations, any place that has pushed back to this idea, perhaps even under the guise of, of, of it bringing in criminal elements? Yeah, so the European Union is not a nation, but, it, you know, it's a, it's a group right. of nations. Um, the, the EU is not a fan of this. Um, they think that it undermines the European Union unity. They think that it, it you know, can lead to um, crime. And so the EU has taken issue with some of the, its member states' um, decision to sell citizenship, namely uh, Malta and, and Cyprus at point. And um, it's it's actually starting to, to hear, to um, adjudicate this. Uh, we'll see what happens. I uh, My hunch is they're not going to be successful because after all, it, it is a country's sovereign right to decide who belongs to it. Um, you know, you could never, it's really hard to tell a country, you have to make this person a citizen when they're dealing with stateless people. So it's also hard to say, you're not allowed to make this person a citizen if they're dealing with someone they want. Um, so there, that kind of pushback's been there. There are countries that probably would, would never do this because it doesn't really, it's not really what they're, you know, I, I don't see France ever selling their citizenship outright. Um, because of the way that they, you know, perceive themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and pushback, you know, pushback is, could, also comes from certain political groups and interest groups and, and whatnot. But I don't know that there's any particular country that's leading the way in, in uh, advocating against this. Has it made it easier at all for criminal elements to travel around the world? And has there been evidence from, from groups like Interpol or international organizations to say that this has become a problem in that respect? So for travel, I'm not sure because if somebody's on an Interpol list, um, they're, they're on the list whether they're, you know, from from Greece or Malaysia or China or like it doesn't, they, their photos there, you know, and so unless they're wearing a, a, a funny hat and a uh, fake mustache and crossing the border <laughs> like that. I, I think that would be the, the limiting factor. You know, there's biometric information floating around. So I think Interpol probably has ways of, of preventing people from traveling on second or third passports. Uh, the, having another citizenship can make it easier for criminals, say, to open bank accounts um, in other countries or to go under the radar in, in, in other capacities, maybe not as physical people, but, you know, as business people or, or, or you know, for tax purposes or what have you. So, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, you can just look at, there's there are lots of known instances of wanted criminal, wanted alleged criminals obtaining second citizenship. So um, it's, it's a part, it's definitely a part of the business. I don't, I don't know that it's the motivating primary part of the business. Um, criminals aren't always, the most reliable uh, clientele because they do tend to get caught and thrown in jail. Um, but they're, they're there for sure. Talk about the cost of this for those, for, for the elites, for example, seeking these passports. What, what does it cost? What does that framework look like? 
So if you're going through official channels, you're looking at a few hundred thousand dollars to start um, going up to over a million. Um, the Some of the Caribbean countries were on the lower end of that. The European countries, of course, are on the higher end of that. Um, and then if you go through back channels, I mean, a few years ago, someone in Comoros told me yeah, for, for a, few, a few thousand dollars, you can get a Comoros passport. So, but that wasn't, that wasn't strictly um, above board. Talk about who's making the money from this. Is it the countries? Is it groups within the countries? Yeah, so countries, uh, when they set up these quote-unquote official programs, there's typically a fund where the money goes, and the fund is supposed to benefit that, that nation. Um, so let's say that happens. They get that money. Um, if you're selling real estate, there's a whole economy around this, right? So if real estate is part of the transaction, there's the real estate brokers, there's the sellers, there's the lawyers, there's that whole sort of cottage industry. Um, then there's the consultants or lawyers that actually process the, the immigration side of things on, on both in the country and for the client. And um, I referred to them earlier, these consultants who really have set up the industry Um and they're taking fees, uh, you know, several thousand, maybe tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the client. And they're just taking that cut as part of the fee. Um, beyond that, you know, there have been reports of bribery, um, of crooked politicians, of, you know, bureaucrats that are making a little on the side. So there's also the informal side of things where, where maybe a, 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 little, a little corruption um, comes into play. Are there more and more Americans that are participating in this? Yes. Um, yes, I recently saw an article that American interest in second or third citizenship has surged. Um, combination of things, you know, the, a few months ago, things in the U.S., there was a lot of gun violence. So I think anecdotally that contributed to people trying to move or at least have a plan B. Um, these were people who worried about their kids. And again, this is anecdotal. Mm-hmm. I, I did a little reporting around it, and it, it really shook people up. Um, you know, taxes are a perennial uh, issue for Americans who don't like taxes. Um, politics. And um, and finally, COVID. You know, I think when COVID hit and all the countries had closed their borders, Americans who are used to being able to go wherever the heck they want because they have a very good passport for travel saw themselves um, shut out of everywhere, everywhere in the world. And not everyone was happy with that. And so to prevent this from happening in the future, uh, I think there was a surge of interest in second citizenship as, um, you know, as an insurance policy, if there's another pandemic and you want to leave the U.S., at least you'll have another place that is kind of legally obligated to take you in as a citizen. And what is the gold standard in these passports? If, if, if you want to be able to travel anywhere, stay as long as you want, what's the gold standard these days? I think any European passport, any EU passport is really good. Um, Canada has a good passport. The U.S., all things considered, is still pretty good. Uh, every year, these consultants who work on on uh, on this published lists and um, yeah, they're, they're you know the the top five always kind of fluctuate. But uh, and any any Western or wealthy Asian country is, is a pretty good bet. And obviously, this is a business that's going to continue to grow. Yeah, unless something crazy happens. I mean, we'll see what the EU pulls off with their with their. Um, you know, protests uh, against this business. And um, we'll also see where the politics of individual nations go. 
expect I don't expect this business to stop stop thriving anytime soon. And finally, what are nations that you think that that may not be actively in this business now, but that maybe in a few years will, will be? Well, again, we'll see what happens in Europe, but I imagine there there are a handful of countries in Europe who would like to make a little extra money in this way um, if it meant not not uh, getting into trouble with with the EU. Um, let's see. You know, the usual suspects are small countries, mm-hmm. island island nations, um, countries that were once colonized by another power, and uh, tax havens. So, and any any countries that fit those descriptions, I think would be would be likely um, likely sellers. Atusa Abrahamian, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Who What Why podcast. My pleasure, Jeff. Take care. You too. Thank Bye-bye. you, and thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who What Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who What Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.